You are listening to Apes Among Us, the official podcast of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. And I hope that the quality of the next couple episodes more than makes up for our prolonged absence. We've got some really great stuff lined up for our third official episode. We'll update you on our latest expeditions to Area X, and we'll preview our next episode, which I think you will find highly interesting. But most importantly, we will get to know Matt Pruitt. Matt has been a ubiquitous figure in the Wood Ape field. He's been a leading field researcher for the BFRO. He's the editor and producer for Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. He's the field operations coordinator for the NAWAC. And now he can add co-host of Apes Among Us to his exhaustive resume. Matt, thank you for joining me in this endeavor. Thanks so much for having me, Brandon. It's a real honor and a pleasure. So I realize I never really had a conversation with you about your background and history in wood apery. How did you get involved in the subject in the first place? Well, when I was a kid, I was always interested in strange or esoteric topics, mostly scientifically oriented ones, like all my favorite books as a kid. I had this huge collection of dinosaur books, and I would memorize the Latin names of dinosaurs and you know, uh, try to amaze my parents' friends with that. So I was always interested, I guess, in creatures <laughs> to some degree. And then you know, I came from a, a family with a lot of uh, heavy emphasis on the sciences. My dad's a doctor. My mom's a nurse. My brother uh, was in the military, but became a uh, an EMT paramedic. And then my sister's a pharmacist. So always had that kind of grounding, uh, rooted interest in the sciences. But actually, I had an experience when I was 17 uh, there in the North Georgia mountains, which is the area that I grew up, not far from where Deliverance was filmed. Uh, <laughs> if that If that brings you some familiarity with the area. It was a terrifying experience myself and four other people uh, shared together. We had gone to go camping at this location that had a reputation for being frightening and spooky and strange things happened there. And so we went there to kind of experience that. And uh, we actually had a camcorder with us. And what we experienced was so frightening. We, we abandoned the place that night, left all of our stuff there, our tents. Uh, we had coolers with food, our sleeping bags, you know, all of that. Never thought that there were animals responsible for what we had heard because it was so bizarre and strange. We knew it wasn't, you know, deer or bear, you know, normal Southern Appalachian animals. We knew there weren't other people there. We weren't dealing with other people. So it wasn't until a couple of years later that I found some Bigfoot information. And honestly, my first thought was like, oh, this is what a preposterous uh, proposal that there would be these apes in North America. Ha ha ha. And I eventually started reading through certain specific witness testimonies, realizing as I was reading them that, oh, man, this is so very similar to what I experienced, that it was, you know, the consistencies were pretty overwhelming. And then I found through further search, the BFRO's website, which was kind of still early, it was in its infancy at that time. This would have been the early 2000s. And there were audio files of purported vocalizations there. And wood knocks. So, specifically, the Ohio howl uh, and whoops and knocking sounds. And I still had this tape. You know, again, we had a camcorder that recorded the events of that night in 1999. So I wasn't just having to rely on my own memory of those sounds. I actually had this record of the sounds we heard, and they were identical. And then the hook started to be set. You know, and I thought, oh man, maybe, geez, is there something to this? You know. For the first couple of years, I didn't really go out in the field per se. In the first couple of years, it was just about gathering information. So 
I started finding local witnesses and people who had had observations and encounters around the area where I grew up. And I really started digging into uh, historical records. So the archives of the first print media in Northeast Georgia. And within the first year alone, I amassed a little file and had 37 archived newspaper or print media articles that detailed people's observations of these things. So then I realized, okay, well, this is not something new. It's not the product of the 50s. It's not the product of the television or the radio or something like that. It's much, much older. Once that hook really got set, then it was like I couldn't sleep at night anymore. It's all I would think about and it became consuming. And then, you know, the idea that, well, maybe I could go out and have that kind of encounter again, or maybe I could go out and find tracks or try to see one. And so I started going out in the field in 2004. And from then on, it's just increased and increased and has dictated the better part of my life now for all of those years. You know, it's funny. I, I think that a lot of people don't realize that there have been historical sighting accounts dating way past 1967, which is when I think a lot of people realize that the wood ape may even exist, you know, because of the Patterson-Gimlin film. So when you're out there in Georgia, I imagine that you didn't hear banjos echoing through the hills, through the mountains. What did you hear exactly? We had talked off and on about camping in this mountain, but we had an opportunity to. So we went on a whim, parked at the foot of the mountain, and we set up, you know, we had two tents. And again, we were all underage. So none of us were drinking because none of us could even access alcohol. We didn't have older siblings to buy us alcohol. So we had coolers full like hot dogs and Mountain Dew, basically, you know, the, the, the Southern Appalachian staple diet. Uh, <laughs> so we set up our camp there. We didn't even get there until well after dark and set up this camp. And as we made our way up the mountain by way of an old logging road that was heavily overgrown, it began with things. We could hear things paralleling us on either side, walking alongside us. And again, it was uninhabited. There weren't homes up there. Uh, and so we turn off our flashlights and listen, and we could still hear the things walking around, but we couldn't see anything. So we knew, well, like whatever it is doesn't have flashlights. They're, you know, operating in the dark without the need of some kind of illumination. And this continued as we made our way up the mountain. And that escalated into branches. You could hear branches breaking loudly and snapping and then being what sounded like ripped off of the tree and then being hit, you know, against the tree, basically wood knocks, just bam, bam, bam. And this was going on on two sides of us. And that began to escalate. And, you know, the funny thing is I still have this video. I need to get it digitized, but I'll have to spend quite a bit of time bleeping out all of the 17 year old <laughs> freak out cussing because we were so frightened. But we were we were yelling at him. Part of us was like, well, what if it's people? And we were like, hey, we have guns. We're going to shoot you. You know, identify yourself. Of course, we didn't even have any guns. We had nothing. And uh, it eventually escalated into vocalizations, these whoop sounds. Uh, and then these louder screams. But at one point, towards the end, the camcorder, again, this is a 90s camcorder that my friend, he, my friend basically, you know, stole it for the night, for the weekend from his mom. And uh, it had a little halogen bulb for kind of an illuminator on the front of it. And so he would swing it around. He was never really looking through the viewfinder. He was just kind of pointing the camera around and swinging it around. But at one point, we heard something immediately beside us, and he swung the light, and we aimed our mag lights over there. And then this massive tree, this big tree, snap and break and crash. 
And then when we got home, when we got back to my mom's house, this is only about six miles away from my mom's house where she still lives and where I grew up. We watched the tape back to see if we had captured any of the sounds. And you can clearly see big red reflective eyes right in that moment. And when the light hits it, they they kind of uh, narrow as if they're blinking or starting to close. And then they turn away and then this tree comes down. And so, of course, that scared the heck out of us as kids. We're like, what is that? What are those eyes? But again, you know, I've, I've seen bears many times camping, hiking, fishing, hunting with my dad. You know, we had deer. We'd have herds of deer in my yard there, like 25 to 30 deer at a time. So I was familiar enough with animals to know that whatever we were hearing was not the typical animal. So it really, as bizarre as it sounds, it made sense in that context that, hey, weird things happen in this place that people can't understand. And the funny thing, too, is I went back there many, many times that summer and the next summer, oftentimes by myself to see if it would happen again. And it never happened again. I never had anything like that uh, happen in that location ever again. But yeah, basically it was being paralleled closely on two sides, hearing branches breaking, being ripped from trees, loud wood knocks, powerful vocalizations. uh, And then on reviewing the video, seeing these big reflective eyes, big like almond shaped eyes. Very bizarre. Yeah. I think that me and every single person who is listening to this right now would be very, very interested in seeing that video. So I hope that you're able to get it digitized and possibly uploaded for sharing in the future. Yeah, I need to. It's on a little VHS-C tape. And so I actually have a VHS-C to VHS adapter. I just need a VCR with like an RCA to USB out. I only recently got the tape back a few years ago. Um, because it was always in storage along with other stuff at my mom's because I never had the ability to digitize it. I've shown it to a whole lot of my southeastern Bigfoot friends, you know, if we gathered at a place, you know, where someone did have a VCR. But yeah, I need to I need to get some kind of a VCR with an adapter so I can get that digitized and thrown up on a YouTube channel. But yeah, it's sitting in my it's on my bookshelf right now, as a matter of fact, with a lot of other Bigfoot and ape related stuff for sure. I think that would be a fantastic piece of evidence at the very least. You know, you described behaviors like breaking trees down or pushing trees down, I should say, wood knocks, making weird vocalizations, seeing red eyes. And I think that's exactly how Bigfoot and or wood apes have wound up in the paranormal section of every single library because people just don't know what to do with that information. They go out in the woods at night and they experience something that they've never heard or seen before. And I think that's why Bigfoot and or wood apes unfortunately get lumped in with the paranormal side of things. When in reality, I think that it is just an animal that people just have not experienced before. And because they haven't experienced it, they lump it in with ghosts and UFOs. The primary causes of that are, A, you know, people are just not front-loaded with the provisional hypothesis that there might be apes in North America or, mm-hmm. let's say, specifically the Southern Appalachians. So, again, people are confronted with strange sounds. That's just not on their list of things that you could potentially attribute that to. So they have to reach for something else. And unfortunately, too, again, most people not having that item in their multiple choice list and that criteria, they often will will make a large leap 
you know, again, there's kind of this arrogance that we know everything there is to know about North American mammals and everything's been discovered. And so they make a further leap to say, well, it has to be something paranormal, supernatural, metaphysical, extraterrestrial, et cetera. Whereas, you know, the more familiar you are with the canon of ape behavior or the, the entirety of the ape behavioral repertoire, you realize like, oh, that everything that occurs in these Bigfoot or Sasquatch reports, even historically, they all have correlatives in the known apes. And as far as I can tell, the only two major distinctions between, you know, wood apes and the known apes is that they do seem to have reflective eyes. That's, you know, pretty commonly reported, and they seem to be adept swimmers. Other than that, everything in their behavioral repertoire, there is a correlative in the known apes. You know, it's all very well documented and understood ape behavior. But yeah, I definitely agree that, you know, it gets lumped into those other categories. But I think it's primarily because people aren't seeing them. In a lot of those cases, they're just hearing them. And also, too, the nature of the sounds, as you've experienced, these are big, powerful animals. So even if their intention is just to deter a human aggressor because they're scared or they're intimidated, and that's why they're trying to, you know, encourage humans to leave, the way the humans interpret that is they hear a big, scary sound and they think, it's malevolent or evil, or it means them harm. That gets coupled into this kind of paranormal uh, spiritual explanation where, oh, it's evil, it's demonic, it's haunted, it's being, you know, this place is the devil's canyon or the devil's mountain or the devil's creek, that it has some, again, like a malevolent connotation when really it's, now they're just big apes and they make big sounds and those sounds can really get under our skin in the dark, you know? <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a big factor too is that the majority of the activity that people report happen in the dark. And when they're in the dark, your mind tends to go to different dark, scary places. Absolutely. So from this experience in Georgia, where did you go from there? Well, again, it was a couple of years. So I didn't start looking into the Bigfoot information until about 2001. And then as I became more and more interested, as I read more, by 2002 is when I really started interviewing witnesses and I started collecting that historical information and just voraciously reading everything I could, getting all the books I could get my hands on. You know, at that time, there was very little about Bigfoot or Sasquatch on the internet. There was the BFRO's website and a couple of other small ones. But um, I didn't start going out in the field with the idea of, trying to see one or trying to pursue one or encounter one or finding evidence really until 2004 is when I started doing that. And for a long time, I reached out to anyone that I could online trying to find someone to talk to about it. And the funny thing was I, I didn't get hardly any responses. Again, it took a lot of years of outreach before I finally met people who were like-minded and who are open and willing to kind of exchange information to a certain degree and talk openly about the subject, et cetera. Eventually what happened was there was a group of guys outside of the Atlanta area who were all trained trackers that had military backgrounds. And most of them had actually gone into uh, medical services. So again, a few paramedics and one um, flight medic. And they had found a set of tracks in Northeast Georgia, not terribly far from where I grew up, but a little bit closer to Athens, where the University of Georgia is. And they had posted a bit about it online on a little obscure Bigfoot forum. And I connected with those guys and became friends with them. And uh, then finally, I had a group of other people, older people, kind of mentors, really, uh, to go out in the field with. And that kind of parlayed into me eventually attending a BFRO expedition by invitation. I didn't have to pay to, to go. 
and Matt Moneymaker was there. And then he asked me to join the group. And that's how all that had started. How long were you with the BFRO and how did that lead to your current membership status with the NAWAC? That expedition that I went on where I met Matt Moneymaker and officially joined the group was in May of 2007. So I was a member of that organization from then until uh, I resigned in February of 2014. So it was almost seven years. And, you know, I'm very grateful for a lot of those experiences. I made a lot of great friends, met a lot of fantastic people, including my wife throughout those endeavors. Uh, And I got to travel a lot and see a lot of uh, really interesting and fascinating places. And, of course, meet a lot of witnesses, too. Um, And speaking of meeting people along that way, during that time, I actually lived in the Pacific Northwest for almost three years and got to know Cliff Berrickman pretty well during that time. And I went on a trip with Cliff down in Northern California to visit the Patterson-Gimlin film site. And on that trip, I met Brian Brown. I actually met uh, Bob and Kathy Strain on that trip as well and uh, a couple of other NAWAC members. I think at the time, the group was still the Texas Bigfoot Research Conservancy but I was very familiar with them. You know, I had listened to Brian's podcasts from the Bigfoot Information Project podcast through to the Bigfoot show, et cetera. So I was super familiar with him. And so through that, I was always kind of aware of what the group was doing. And I followed it online and listening to the podcast pretty readily. And when I eventually resigned from the BFRO, I really kind of swore off groups for a long time. I thought, well, I'll just do this on my own. I think I'll be happier that way. I had a small group of friends in the Southeast that I still do research with to this day. Eventually on Facebook, they had posted an article that was entitled something like NAWAC expands its areas of operation. And that included some states where I lived and places where I still did research. So that encouraged me to reach out and apply for membership and uh, reached out to Brian and then Alton and eventually joined the group officially in October of 2016. And have just been continually impressed by their efforts. Once I finally got to go to Area X at the invitation of Daryl Collier, and I saw the scope of the work there, I was just absolutely blown away, especially the Herculean effort that it takes to pull off something like one of these summer operations, and the fact that the group has done it for so many summers. Uh, It's an incredible amount of effort, and I honestly think it's the strongest effort that's ever been made in the history of the subject to bring closure you know, to end the mystery and to kind of begin the reality of studying these apes. So uh, it's been an amazing thing. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful to be a part of this group for sure. I've always had an interest in trying to get footage. And so that's heavily supported too. You know, they encourage my efforts in trying to get, uh, you know, visual or photographic documentation down there as well. And again, I very, very much want to see one. I think if it's going to happen anywhere, it's probably going to happen in Area X because I've been trying to see one of these things for over 15 years now, and it hasn't happened yet, but I'm I'm definitely still trying to. You are still at it, and that is the next subject that I wanted to bring up. You spent a week in Area X recently. How did that go? There's never a dull week in Area X, even though, you know, our most recent week there, there was not the kind of activity that you know, would be something to write home about in terms of ape activity, but it's such a beautiful place. It always feels like such a gift to be there, especially to be anywhere for a week, you know, to just disconnect from, uh, you know, the doldrums of your typical technologically locked in work life and staring at phones and waiting on emails, et cetera. Just to be in a wild place for a week is one thing, let alone a beautiful place and a place that has the potential of something life-changing happening at literally any moment. 
it's a fantastic thing. So it was an, an incredibly exciting week and uh, an invigorating week and definitely refilled my fuel tank, so to speak, even though we didn't see any apes. It's a really beautiful gift to be able to go to a place where your cell phone has no reception and you have no other choice but to just turn it off for a week. And once you're out of that negative news cycle for a couple of days and you go back to where you have cell phone service and you read a couple of the headlines, you just want to go straight back down into the valley where you can't read any more bad news. The great thing about it for me is like, you know, and you know this too, you you play music as well. You know, the first time that I, because I have a big passion for playing music, the first time that I was on tour professionally and the realization hit me that, oh my, this is all anyone expects of me. It's like, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. All that is expected of me is to play music. And that was like this amazing kind of weight lifted of, you know, because usually you're fighting through uh, all your responsibilities to get to the point where you get to do what you want to do. And being an area X for a week is like that because I've scheduled the time off work. I've taken care of all my professional affairs. And like for that week, no one expects anything of me but to be in the field and give it my best. And so it's like, Every moment in that situation, you're always in the right place at the right time, and that's a great feeling. I know exactly what you mean. I am going to school to earn a degree in wildlife, biology, and conservation, and a big part of my research and work in the wood ape field is conserving that entire habitat in Area X, not only for the wood ape, but for everything else that exists in that entire ecoregion, the amount of wildlife that you see there in any given week is just incredible. My hope is that if and when we are able to definitively prove that the wood ape is a real unique species, that the entire habitat and the entire region will just be protected. So you spent a week in Area X a few weeks back. Did anything significant happen? A big part of our week there was really preparation. It was the first technically the first week of the summer phase of the operation. Uh, this year has been a little bit different in that the operation has been split into multiple phases, whereas I know in the years past, it had always been primarily concentrated during the summer months. So being the first team of the summer operation, there was a lot to do to prep for the remaining teams and the following teams. So one of the things we're doing differently this year was expanding our overwatch capabilities by trying to convert more of our structures into Overwatch platforms and kind of building on frames that we can attach this black plastic film to that the thermal imagers can see through so that we can utilize the structures typically, you know, as normal humans would do, but that they function more as Overwatch structures. So that took a bit of time. You know, there's some new camera technology that we're trying to use, uh, basically just modifying existing camera traps, disabling the infrared flashes, uh, so that nothing has the, it doesn't emit anything whatsoever, even in the dark for nocturnal animals to detect. So we had some of those to deploy. Uh, there's a fantastic member, Bud Milliker, who's done an excellent job at um, camouflaging these cameras, utilizing the bark of certain native trees there, like shagbark hickory and some of the oak trees. So we installed all those. Uh, speaking to the um, fantastic audio recordings that you've been kind of at the helm of curating, you know, we do have long-running, uh, long-duration audio recorders that stay out in the field for the entireties of the summer. So those have to be serviced and maintained. So putting in new large-capacity SD cards and changing out the batteries. So a lot of our week was just 
getting those things in place, making sure everything worked, making sure everything was good to go for the following teams to just run smoothly. Because with any luck, you know, if we set all that up correctly during that first team, they don't have to be touched until the last team, uh, you know, completes their week there. And that way that technology just kind of sits out in the environment. Hopefully, you know, the environment forgets that it's out there, so to speak, and it doesn't require human intervention every few days or human maintenance there. So that was a, a big part of our week. We did get a lot of exploring in, which is impossible not to do when you're there. You know, I definitely get bit by the bug where I want to see what's around the next bend every time. And so the first day that we did that, we could hear thunder rolling. Sounded quite distant, but I kept saying, oh, let's go around the next bend. And we were all, you know, equally enthusiastic about that. But we went one bend too many and the bottom dropped out. It got to that, but it was about 2.15 in the afternoon and it went from daylight to overcast to almost like near dark very quickly. And by like 2.20 in the afternoon, it looked like dusk, you know, and we were like, oh, we're in trouble. (laughs) So we we did a long hike back just in torrential downpour and soaked to the bone. But uh, so I kind of learned my lesson. We didn't venture out as far on the other days when there was distant thunder, but it rained just about every day. But so that was a little prohibitive. The, the, The valley is situated in such a way that there's one primary drainage and a lot of other secondary drainages, and we're so close to the headwaters of each of those little drainages, including the primary creek, that when it does rain heavily, it doesn't take very much for all those waters to swell. And for what, you know, if our listeners have seen a lot of pictures or video of Area X in the primary creek channel, these big, massive, exposed rocks, you know, after a day of rain, it's four and a half, five feet deep, and you can't see any rocks. It just looks like a flowing channel of of blue-green water. And you're not swimming across that, you know, unless you want to just get fully soaked and submerged and and toss off all your gear or something like that. So we were a little prohibited in where we could go because of the water levels, but it was still a fantastic week. But yeah, we didn't have anything that was definitively ape-related in terms of characteristic sounds or indicative sounds or any kind of visual sightings. I think one thing we did that was different because we did install uh, a complete overwatch framing system on one of the structures there is that we did over 50 hours of overwatch that week. And, and I'd have to go back through the notes, but I don't know that any team in the past had done that many hours of after dark overwatch you know for new listeners you know watching through thermal imagers from a constructed blind that nothing can see you within uh with the intention of making visual contact with filming with the thermal or potentially getting a shot opportunity at a wood ape so pulling off 50 hours of that in a week was you know a lot of sleepless nights but we figured out a good way to do that in shifts so we definitely were on high alert eyes and ears day and night uh, but yeah, nothing definitively ape-related during our week there. Yeah, I think those nighttime opportunities are our greatest chance in collecting the specimen that we are trying to provide. Because we've documented many, many, many times over that if you go out in the field during the day and you push the bush and you hike around and you attract any sort of local wildlife, they tend to follow you back into camp. And when everybody shuts the lights off and hits the rack, that's when things start to happen. So I really, really hope that people place a really high emphasis this year on conducting Overwatch. And I think that with our new structure, with the Overwatch attached to it, that we have a a 
really decent chance of hopefully obtaining that specimen that we're looking for. Yeah, I think so. I think we've made it much easier to do and for longer shifts and to do very quietly. And it's easy to maintain that sound discipline and light discipline. So I think, yeah, the easier it is, the more we'll do it, the more we do it, the more opportunities we'll get. Uh, but it was just an interesting week, you know, to your point earlier, the place is teeming with wildlife. Um, but I saw less wildlife during that week than I've ever seen. Now, I've only spent collectively 32 days there, um, whereas I know many, many members have spent, you know, exponentially more days than that. So I, I'm certainly not speaking from a point of, of, you know, expertise in that. But I will say out of that week was the least amount of wildlife I've seen or heard during a week there. I think the water levels probably had a lot to do with that. Um, but yeah, I think it's a fantastic opportunity to see anything that moves around at night, uh, you know, whether that's bears or bobcats or, you know, a whole host of different critters. But I, I agree. I think that's the absolute best opportunity to observe and potentially collect the specimen of, of one of these apes because they're moving in, you know, the security of their darkness. And so it's not just a fleeting glimpse in most of those accounts where they've been seen with the thermals. It's been kind of an extended observation. And that's what affords not only a shot opportunity, but would also afford, you know, a lengthy clip of footage that would be valuable in terms of how much information you would get out of that footage, how much of the animal you can see, how long you can watch it, what kind of behaviors you could see during the duration that it's being filmed, et cetera. You know, you had mentioned that you had spent how many days in Area X? 30, 50, 32. 32. I've spent probably 60 or so days in Area X. And my experience with wood ape activity has amounted to maybe two or three minutes out of 60 days. So you go there and you're there for a week or two at a time and you are hunting, you're observing, you're documenting, you're hiking, and you're just waiting for these one or two minutes of activity and then it dies down again. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's another thing that, you know, I have had a handful of encounters and experiences over the years traveling extensively across the country pursuing these things. Again, it's just a handful. I think if I were to describe them all, it might sound like quite a few, but then you put that in the context of, man, it took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days. And I mean, one year alone, I spent over 200 days and nights in the field, not consecutively, but in you know chunks of like three to five days at a time when I had a, a full-time sponsorship. And even then, I only had two real nights of interest, you know, and then after that, I mean, I've gone stretches of time where it's been four years where I haven't experienced anything that I would deem ape-related between incidents. So, yeah, it's it's definitely, you know, the more you're out there, the better your odds are. But it's still not like, even in a place like Area X, it's not like things are happening every second. It's just a, that things could happen at any second. And, you know, the it's like the axiom you know, opportunity dances, but only with those who are willing to be on the dance floor. And so the more you're on the dance floor, the more you get that opportunity for sure. Yeah. And that is a beautiful analogy. And the NAWAC has been dancing on that dance floor for 10, 15 years. And the Watchtower Project monograph, which you can find on our website, by the way, at woodape.org, is really the definitive work of everything that we've documented. Absolutely. I think even to that point, too, if you look at it collectively, the years of the operations 
the number of people involved, you know, you see this huge handful of experiences and of observations. But again, to a person, you know, if you looked at any one person who spent dozens or even hundreds of days in there, they would tell you, oh, yeah, it's extremely rare that these things happen. So, again, it's always easy to look at, you know, the body of work and go, oh, yeah, they've got stuff happening all the time. Why haven't they, you know, collected one yet? Why haven't they gotten this yet? But it's still, you, you know, you zoom in a bit, a bit of a more microcosm view and you realize like, yeah, to a person even being there, if you're there for a week, as alert as you can be, as many hours as you can stay awake, you know, uh, it's still not happening every five seconds and they're not popping out from behind every rock and every tree and giving you an opportunity to see them or, you know, you're not hearing them on the daily basis. So it does take a big group effort like this, many years of, you know, these long stretches, of these summer operations and occupying that valley for consecutive months at a time to come up with the handful of observations that have occurred there. And this is a good segue into something that I wanted to mention. You said that you have to be there in order to observe these things. And I wanted to remind folks that you can apply for membership at woodape.org. If you have any interest in natural history or in the outdoors at all, you do have this opportunity to join us and be there to document it. We need people. We need people who can dedicate the time to have these two or three second experiences. That's an excellent point, too. And I think there's, to some degree, there's a bit of a, maybe a perception of people that it's a regional group because there is a single study site that garners the most focus. But, you know, like myself, for example, I'm still out all year round a lot of the time in the Southern Appalachians. So I still spend a lot of time on the Cumberland Plateau in the Southern Appalachians, East Tennessee, West North Carolina, North Georgia. You know, I'm, I'm happy to to meet people and spend time in the field with them if they care to join along. And I know that that's true of many of the members of this organization in other parts of the country, too. So if if that's a bit of a barrier to entry, so to speak, I would still reach out and, and apply for membership. There you know, very well might be members in your area that you know, that's a good way to meet people and network with people and to get involved on that level. And then, you know, if time allows and if resources allow, definitely it's absolutely beyond worth making the trip to Area X, you know, should you become an investigator and get involved to that capacity. But for people who are interested and just want to be involved in the discussion and the conversation or even getting out in the field in their own regions, you know, there's definitely still room for that, too. It's not just an Oklahoma thing or a Texas, Oklahoma thing. I mean, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm still out there as much as I can be. So. I, I hope that that's not too prohibitive a factor to people and that people who are, are who are interested but just don't feel like they live in the right place, I would just drop that worry and get involved in the conversation anyway. That was a worry of mine when I discovered the group for myself by listening to the Bigfoot show. And I sent Brian Brown a message about possibly meeting up with him and joining the group. And he said that he lived in Minnesota. I also happen to live in Minnesota. And I thought that might be prohibitive to me joining the group and being able to travel to Area X and have these sort of experiences and help document everything that they're doing down there. But as it turns out, I joined the group and I put a lot of effort and time and money and sacrifice vacation time and because of that, I've been rewarded with some of the greatest experience I've ever had in my life. So I really, really hope that 
people can take that into account and come join us and have those same experiences for themselves. And if you are interested in applying for membership, please visit our website at woodape.org. I do hope that there are interested people in the Southern Appalachians or in other regions of the country that they want to be involved. They can absolutely still be involved in the group and in the discussion without having to immediately sign up to go to Area X for a week and find a week off work and find a way to drive, you know, 800 miles or something like that. There's definitely other opportunities to be involved that don't require geographic proximity. Yeah, and I completely agree. And I've always found that you don't necessarily have to sign up for a week in Area X, but the more time that you invest in the group, the more rewarding experiences that you'll have. The other great thing about this group, too, is their openness about um, methodologies and certain things that have happened that have unfolded in the field that were advantageous and that they've then turned into methodologies or protocols. I mean, there's so many things. Again, I've been doing this for a long time. And after the first few visits to X, it changed a lot of the way I did field research. And so you can take, you know, a single trip there and then apply that to your own field research at home or in your own areas and do great things. That was one of the big pluses about the podcast to me talking about Overwatch, for example. Man, if I had known when I owned two thermal imagers that I could have seen through black plastic, <laughs> I didn't know that because obviously, you know, you can't see through most surfaces. So uh, that would have been nice to know. So I love the fact that they are open with things that work and with things that yield results and that uh, lend themselves to observations or encounters, etc. And those are the kind of things that if you're someone like me, like uh, my research is not just located to X. I'm out in my study sites here in the Southeast all the time just because I love being out there and I still really, really want to see one. So things that you learn from that group, you can apply to anywhere. It's like, you know, if you went on a bear hunt somewhere and you learn from some master bear trackers or people who were essentially expert bear biologists and ecologists, well, that would apply to anywhere that you have black bears. You know, the habitat might be different, there might be some variables, but for the most part, you know, you learn these strategies about the animal and that you can carry that with you into other things that you do. And that's that's worth the price of admission alone, so to speak. So I went to Area X for a few days over Memorial Day weekend, and I was with my field partner, my friend and fellow NAWAC investigator, Chad. And Chad had a really interesting and kind of harrowing experience that I wanted to share with everybody. And I hope that he's okay with this. So we were down there and it was just us two. And it was the first night that we were there and we were implementing a leapfrog scenario. So in a leapfrog scenario, you take two or three people and you set yourselves up in specific locations down any given trail. And you put one person sitting on the path and one person walks down the path. And when you pass the person that's sitting, the person that's sitting counts to, say, 100 or 200, for example. And then when they get to 200, then they stand up and they start walking. And the person that's walking counts to 200 and they sit down. So you're basically passing each other back and forth, back and forth for any given amount of time. And on one of these intervals, Chad was sitting with the mountain to his back. I passed him, and maybe five or ten minutes after I passed him, he heard what he described as deep thumps. He described it like thump, thump, 
And when he heard these, he looked behind him. And when he looked behind him, he saw what he described as an upright, at least six foot tall, pitch black, bipedal creature, which was an ape. The ape was charging him. Like it came at him at an incredible, incredible speed. So Chad turned around and he tried to unholster his gun. And as he tried to unholster his handgun, the ape just completely disappeared. This is the second or third time that we've documented in Area X one of these apes bluff charging one of us. Have you ever experienced anything like that? I've heard it in the dark. I've never seen one do it, but I've I've been what I'm certain was bluff charged in the dark on a couple of occasions, one of which was here in Tennessee. See, that was in 2006, so 13 years ago. And yeah, it was myself and another a field partner, and we were very rattled. So I can only imagine how it would have felt to have been in that same situation, but to be essentially alone. And, you know, for people that have not been in those situations, I mean, yeah, there were two of you down there, but when another person is out of eyesight, whether they're 100 yards or 200 yards away, I mean, you you feel essentially alone in a moment of intense and rapid stress like that. You know, it's not like somebody can come to your rescue in a millisecond, you know, so... I can only imagine how he would have felt seeing that, you know, hearing the bluff charge, seeing the bluff charge and being essentially alone in that moment. It's pretty, pretty terrifying to think about. Yeah. And when I finally reached him after we found each other after his incident, his eyes were as wide as dinner plates. And that, to me, indicated that he had definitely experienced something really unique and really kind of terrifying. Yeah, and it might be worth, you know, for listeners, you know, Chad is a person who used to regularly go alone and spend extended times, you know, multiple overnighters alone in other areas of ape activity, specifically around the Hanabi, uh, Oklahoma area, you know, this very kind of famous area of southeastern Oklahoma there. So he's definitely not somebody who you know, is new to the woods or new to the wood ape experience or to the wood ape pursuit. I mean, he's a pretty seasoned guy and a pretty brave guy. And in fact, he told me like when he used to go alone out there all the time, he would just go with a with a knife. He didn't even carry his sidearm. So I think it takes a lot to rattle him. And so the fact that he was rattled, I think is highly significant. Yes, very, very highly significant. And I think from now on, Chad will definitely be carrying more than a Bowie knife on him from this point on. I think it's really telling, too, that the thing happens so very quickly. You know, you hear a million stories about how fast they are, or you hear, I've heard so many eyewitness testimonies about how the sighting is so brief that the initial moments are just kind of shock and confusion, and then by the time that's clear, it's over. And uh, that seems to be the reality of it. Most people don't get an extended look at it, an extended observation, especially, you know, Chad being a, a wood ape researcher, a wood ape investigator, you know, he's aware that they're out there and he's, uh, you know, keeping an eye open specifically for that animal among other animals that he might encounter. And even in those circumstances, it's still difficult to process in the moment that it's happening because they're very fast, fleeting moments that, that, pass by literally in the blink of an eye. And I had that very same experience in my first trip down to Area X. And this is well documented on the website on an article that I wrote. Mark McClurkin and I 
we're driving down the road to the cabin that we used to do our research out of and we rounded a corner and we saw an upright ape that was running at an incredible incredible clip and really it just looked like a blur to me and because of that blur it took a really long time to sink in what i what i had actually seen like your mind doesn't really know what to do with it for a while you have to really let it settle Absolutely. Yeah. If any of these listeners have watched the Seth Breedlove on the Trail of Bigfoot series, you know, there's an excellent segment about the NAWAC. It's filmed in Area X, which is difficult to do because it's hard as hell to get down there. So most productions can't get production vehicles down there. Um, so luckily, Seth being kind of a, a fantastic you know, one man production crew in a lot of those situations, although he did have uh, a gentleman named Adam with him. So there were two man production crew. They were able to ride in with other members. But if you get to watch that, you'll see. I mean, it's incredibly dense. It's not that sightings are always brief because the things are always lightning fast. That's not always the case. Sightings are brief because the the visual lanes that you are afforded are so narrow. And in that environment, especially, you know, it's incredibly dense secondary growth and some tertiary growth. So it's, you know, it's not old growth forest where you have these big massive tree trunks that go up into this huge thick canopy that no sunlight and no rain penetrates like the Pacific Northwest. You know, you walk around the Pacific Northwest and the the visual range is much, much, much farther because there's no undergrowth because of the nature of that kind of forest. And these forests, like Eastern deciduous forest, which the Washita's constitute the westernmost stand of eastern deciduous forest. How's that for confusing? But, uh, you know, all those have typically been logged. Same with the southern Appalachians. So that secondary growth, which is preferred by most animals, as a matter of fact, which is why animal populations boom in secondary forest, it's so thick. And so, I mean, if you were just to walk in a linear line from one direction to another for 500 yards and put someone with a visual uh, range that would intersect that be like perpendicular to that. They're only going to see you for a split second because you're just not going to be afforded a long visual range in those, in that kind of environment. So you couple that with an animal that is moving really fast. And it's like, yeah, trying to identify something in that moment is extremely difficult. And it takes going back and taking other visual cues from the environment to figure out how tall the thing was or how large or how wide, et cetera, how fast it was moving before it can really sink in. So I, I hope that makes sense to people who are listening who might, you know, justifiably be skeptical and think, well, how come all these sightings are so brief, uh, et cetera. It's just, it's just the nature of that kind of environment and of seeing animals that are rare in that environment and animals that pass through fairly quickly. And that's another point that I wanted to make, too, is that these animals and these apes that we see so very briefly, they're able to navigate a steep, steep, rocky mountainside like nothing. They can scale up a mountain in seconds in what would take you or I minutes. So our sightings are so, so very brief. We have a very brief window of time because of the way that they're able to navigate their natural environment. They're just used to it. So we had another significant event in Area X that happened just last week. And I'm wondering if you can shed some light on what happened. Yeah. So speaking about the incident last week, so, you know, we, we have launched this year's summer operation. My team was the first team of the 
uh, summer phase of the operation following my team during the second team, NAWAC chairman of the board, Alton Higgins, and uh, another fantastic NAWC member named Phil Burroughs uh, had some interesting visual observations there, primarily based on the recent experience that you and Chad had and Chad's observation. Focusing in the same general area where Chad's visual observation occurred recently, they were utilizing the same leapfrog technique, except this time they had three individuals. And so Alton himself was planted on the south side of this footpath. Uh, Phil Burroughs planted himself to the north side of this footpath. If you can imagine a footpath that runs basically almost perfectly east and west. And there's another gentleman named Hans Helm who was walking from the east to the west, going to you know a pre-designated point in the uh, environment there, was going to hang out a while, potentially make some noise, and then come back. Hans is almost like the Pied Piper in this scenario, and they're hoping that something will observe and or follow him that they then themselves could observe. Uh, in that action. So Alton, again, is seated on the south side of this footpath, kind of facing north. Um, he's got a rifle across his lap. He's got a set of binoculars in his hands. He's surveying the environment. And uh, he's hoping to see Hans, you know, on Hans's route doing the, the Pied Piper bit. And uh, at one point to his northeast, he sees an upright figure pass between some trees. And it looks almost uniformly brown. And earlier that day, he had actually lent Phil Burroughs some brown camo netting material. So his mind immediately assumed, oh, well, that's Phil, and he's got that brown stuff on. Uh, so then he decides, well, Phil was supposed to be posted up, so he sees this, you know, what he assumes to be Phil moving. So he's like, well, I better go find him, better go get him. So he gathers up his stuff, and he starts walking in that direction. He, he was whistling loudly. He told me that at one point he started whistling the Andy Griffith theme song, and uh he was whistling and he didn't hear any response. And he was like, ah, it's kind of confusing. And well, maybe I've walked too far, uh, et cetera. So he's getting a little frustrated and he starts to walk back again towards the West. And he just starts yelling for Phil, calling out to him. So eventually that leads him to Phil. And uh, Phil was actually quite further West than where Alton saw this upright Brown figure. And then uh, when he saw Phil, Phil did not have on that camo Brown netting material. The silhouette he cut, so to speak, looked very different than what Alton had initially seen. And so when they came together and started talking about this, Phil realized, well, you know, during this time, I was looking for you. And he said, you know, he looked up and he saw this figure just standing perfectly still, standing upright, as if it was just staring straight ahead. And Phil assumed it was Alton. So he started moving that way and at some point lost sight of it. And then he saw the real Alton, which he realized, you know, looked totally different than the upright figure he had just seen. And so they were both kind of baffled at like, well, how could this have happened? What should we see? And it took some time to sink in before they realized that they might have both seen an ape, potentially the same ape, you know, in all likelihood, uh, not exactly the same time. But, you know, both assuming during this time that what they were seeing was each other. Uh, but not being able to quite understand why they weren't where they expected each other to be. Yeah, that's a really kind of classic scenario that has played out in Area X quite a few times now. We had Ed Harrison, who was on the first episode of Apes Among Us, I believe, in the Encounters episode, who had kind of the same situation happen to him. He was seated down in a little gully, and he saw two upright figures walk by him, one was gray and one was brown, and he immediately assumed that 
they were his teammates. But come to find out later on, his teammates didn't look anything like the upright figures that walked by him. I think there's something in the human brain that tries to solve for the unknown with the known immediately. We're probably all here because of that thing. You know, again, uh, we're all here because our forebears all successfully avoided being eaten by larger, scarier animals in our past. And so there's definitely something to our central nervous system response that is beneficial to our survival. But I think this somehow plays into that because you see that in these narratives. If anyone's read the monograph or listened to a lot of these testimonies of the various NAWC members who see something, and the first thing that your mind tells you is that that's your teammate. Because again, your mind is trying to solve by using these known variables, and you know your teammate somewhere in the environment. So I joined this group. I mean, I listened to those previous uh, recaps of the year operations, those podcasts from Brian's original uh, Bigfoot show episodes. I listened to those religiously. I mean, I, each one of those I've heard, I can't tell you how many times. And again, having my own experiences in the field too, like I went into Area X kind of preloaded with all this information. And yet, last year, I was on the first team of last year's operation. It was my third trip to X. It was the first team of last summer, and it happened to me twice there. The first time, you know, I'll truncate the stories, but the first time it happened, there were four of us together. It was myself, Daryl, Ken Helmer, and my friend Joel Thomas. And to make a long story short, we'd heard something coming down the mountain over an extended period of time, heard big rocks getting displaced and kicked and moved, and heard, you know, brush movement and, and deadfall snapping and breaking underfoot. And eventually it got kind of quiet. We did see a heat signature. And I was focused on this heat signature with my thermal imager. And I was trying to guide Daryl Collier to it because he was going to walk up to it. We couldn't tell if it was a small hot heat signature or if it was a small portion of a larger animal being obscured by the vegetation. So I said, well, I'll keep an eye on it and you go up there to it. Joel Thomas was directly behind me. We're standing right at the foot of the mountain. And as Daryl's moving up there, Right, you know, kind of a 45-degree angle away from me to my right, I heard these big, heavy footfalls start walking away from me, and Joel heard it too. And my and again, I had a thermal imager in my hand to my eye, and I never looked. I kept my eye on the heat signature that I was guiding Daryl towards because my mind told me, oh, that's Ken. Ken is walking up the mountain to your right to go to that same heat signature. So we heard it tromping away. And I said, oh, Ken, are you trying to go up to where Daryl is? And then I heard Ken's voice much, much further up and to my left, the total opposite side. And he was like, no, I'm up here with Daryl. And Joel and I just went, holy, you know, we just sprung into action. And we actually tried to chase it. But by that point, it was pretty far gone. And we were getting tangled up in the growth, trying to climb up the side of the slope. And literally, if I had just heard those footfalls and just turned to my right, I would have seen it. But my mind immediately told me, there's no need to look. That's just Ken because he was it was just so loud and clear. And, it, you know, for the listeners, Ken's a big guy. He's a significantly taller than me and a bigger, you know, bulkier guy. And so it just sounded like a great big guy walking away on two legs. So later that week, I have that in mind. So I'm like, OK, my mind did that thing that I've heard about where it tries to solve for this you know, unknown by saying it's a teammate. So whatever I hear, I'm going to look. I'm going to run it down and look at it. So that was at the very beginning of the week. At the end of the week, 
Joel and I, the last day, we were burning some stuff in the fire pit. We hadn't built a fire all week long. We are burning some stuff in the fire pit, and Daryl and Ken left to do one last day hunt. So they went off to the east, and uh, Joel and I were hanging out in camp, getting some smoke out, burning some wood, and just some paper trash and things like that, some uh, you know burn-friendly trash. And uh, Daryl came back on them after some time. He came on the radio and he said, we're on our way back to camp. We're going to be there in about two minutes. And so in my mind, they're coming back from, from the east. They'll be here in about two minutes. And almost two minutes later, there was this huge crashing sound through the forest behind Joel and I. And my mind, I, I remember thinking almost like out loud in my mind, oh, that's weird that they're coming in off trail. Because I thought they would be using the trail. But then when I heard this crashing, I thought, oh, they must have just cut through the underbrush and taken a shortcut. I didn't even turn and look. And then the next thing I know, they're rounding this bin running. And they're like, did you hear that? And I was like, yeah, I heard that. I thought that was you. And they said, no. You know, we were on the, we were on the road walking up, and we heard this thing come crashing through the woods as soon as we got close to you guys. And I thought it happened again. You know, Twice in a week that happened to me. So it's our brains... Even though you're there to see an eight, you're on red alert, there's still some part of your brain that when something happens, your brain just tells you, oh, that's one of my team members. It just goes to that point, and you, you have to resist that, you know, no matter how aware you are of that. You've got to be cognizant and like, I should look anyway. So this week, I definitely, this last week I was there, I definitely tried to keep that in mind, like, no matter what I hear, no matter how mundane, I should investigate it. Because that's twice that I might have been able to see something if I had looked in time. Nothing can fully prepare you for a week in Area X than more than spending a week in Area X. You can read <laughs> all of the Wood Ape history books. You can read all of the sighting encounters. You can listen to all the podcasts, but nothing can fully mentally prepare you for spending a week in the vicinity of these animals than just being there. And I had kind of a similar situation to you happen to me in Area X. It was three or four years ago. We were with a group of, I think, four or five guys, and we were all just sitting around the campfire having a discussion. It was in the middle of the day, and my friend and field partner, Sean, he heard a whistling off to the west. And we had two very experienced ornithologists that were with us at the time, and they heard it as well. And they said that it sounded nothing like any bird they had ever heard before. I didn't happen to hear the whistle. I must have been talking when it happened. But they pointed out in the direction where they heard the whistling emanate from. So I went up to that area, and those other guys stayed back at camp. As I was exploring the area, keep in mind that this was maybe 200 yards or so west of the campfire that we were sitting around. And I went up there, and as I was poking around, I heard a very clearly bipedal creature walking away from me it was just a very clear crunch 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 very soft cadence and i yelled out sean is that you i thought it was sean and sean as it turns out happened to be you know 200 yards east of me so they were nowhere near me so when you're out there and you hear things like that your mind automatically thinks that oh that's just my teammate so you really have to kind of mentally prepare yourself for those kinds of situations. Absolutely. I think a big part of that, too, is that you read all of these stories. And so 
it's easy to, to let yourself believe that when something happens, it will be dramatic. And it's just not always that way. It's as simple as you hear these very close footfalls and it's just as plain and as real as anything you've ever heard. And it's not some, you know, gigantic Godzilla roar and the ground's not shaking and there's not flocks of birds flying out of the trees to escape some impending. Do- it's just so mundane and normal that your mind goes, oh, that's just this other normal thing. And uh, I'd look back at the and almost every one of those experiences that way where it's like, man, you, you kind of expect you know, a quote unquote Bigfoot encounter to be something really dramatic. And it's just not always that way. There are those rare exceptions like Chad's bluff charge or Mark McCorkin's bluff charge or something like this dramatic moment. But Mm -hmm. for the most part, yeah, it's just, it, it happens and it can almost go right under your radar. It definitely went under my radar twice and I was on full ape alert and it's still, I just immediately thought that was my teammate. So we had mentioned hearing these whistles and a potential Godzilla roar. And this is a perfect segue into the next portion that I wanted to mention in that our next episode is going to be based around vocalizations that we have recorded in Area X. And those whistles that I had mentioned, they're actually recorded on a autonomous recording unit that we have running summer round at least six months out of the year 24 hours a day in area x and we have a lot of really valuable recordings that we are going to share with you on our next episode and to wet your whistle a little bit i think i'd like to just give you a little preview of what we have So that recording you just heard is a very, very short sneak preview for many, many different audio files that we have coming up in our next episode, which is entitled Soundscape X. So please, please stick around for that. We will be producing that episode here in the coming months. Matt, I want to thank you very much for joining me tonight. We have some really, really, really great content here. And I hope that folks listen to this and check out our website again at woodape.org. If you want to apply for membership, if you want to check out the show notes for this episode, if you want to check out anything that has to do with the organization, I highly, highly suggest you do. Thanks so much, Brandon. Thanks so much for having me as well. It's always a pleasure to uh, get to chat with you. All right. Until next time. Thanks a lot, Matt.
Yetis were harmed during the recording of this podcast.